Tonight we're picking it up here in the middle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, starting about at verse 14 and 15. Although it's important for me just to remind you uh, of where we've been before, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starts out on a very practical bent. Paul is speaking for the first eight verses or so about living a life of sexual purity before the Lord. And so, of course, it doesn't get more practical than that, both in Paul's day and in our own day of just having a walk before the Lord that is pure. And then in verses 9 through 12, he spoke about living what we would call a quiet, honest life before God, a life of work, a life of dedication unto the Lord, what we called and what Paul calls in the text there, a quiet life before God. And then picking it up in verse 13, he begins to address important questions that the Thessalonians had regarding the death of their brothers and sisters uh, who had died recently and, of course, died before the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul begins this section. Let's just read here, starting at verse 13. Uh, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Uh, We discussed this last time together, how how Paul said that Christians should not sorrow as those who do not have hope, how, yes, we may sorrow when a believer dies, but it's not the same mourning that someone might have if they're not a believer. But take a look now at verse 14. This is the verse with which we concluded the last time we were together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, Paul was trying to assure the the Thessalonian believers that those who are believers and die before the glorious return of Jesus Christ will not be put at a disadvantage. It's not as if they miss out on anything. He wants us to know, again from verse 14, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That all believers throughout all generations will, in some way or another, be a part of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 15, he begins to carry on the thought, and especially emphasizing the idea that those who are asleep in Jesus now, those believers who die before the second coming of Jesus Christ, those believers are not at a disadvantage. It isn't if they're cheated somehow because they missed being on earth when Jesus Christ returns. And this is what he says here, verses 15 and 16. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And again, we have to be impressed with this. That when Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians, now of course you understand I'm using speaking in a metaphorical way because he's writing the letter. But when he writes to the Thessalonians, He's connecting it with things that he has already taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. And we remind ourselves that he was only with the Thessalonian believers some two or three weeks. He was with them over the span of two Sabbaths. So conceivably, he was there in Thessalonica for up to three weeks, teaching and training the Thessalonian believers. And in that short time, he had already taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a big reminder to us. Many people put uh, eschatology or, or the things in the Bible concerning the last days and the return of Jesus Christ. Many people put those doctrines in a very unimportant place. They think, well, the, these are just sort of the extras in the Christian life. And you, you certainly wouldn't teach young believers about these things. I want you to understand, Paul taught people who had been Christians only a matter of days these important truths about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, What did he teach them? Well, again, connecting it with what he taught before, he reminds them in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. I want you to notice that. Don't skip over that too quickly. Paul here emphasized that this was an authoritative command. Now, we don't know whether Paul received it by a direct revelation from Jesus or whether this was an unrecorded saying of Jesus. One way or another, I want you to notice what Paul's emphasizing here. This came from Jesus and it did not originate with Paul. He says, I say to you by the word of the Lord. You have to admit 
that even though we believe that all of the writings of Paul as they are contained in the New Testament, all of these writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Don't we agree upon that? Yet there were times when Paul recognized that what he was writing was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of those times. He says, I'm telling you this by the word of the Lord that, notice here in verse 5 or verse 15, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, we who alive are alive and remain on the earth at the coming of Jesus Christ, we will not be before those who have already died in the Lord. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that Christians who have died before the return of Jesus... They are not at a disadvantage. Those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not come before them in the order of resurrection. God will allow those who are asleep, in other words, those who have died in Jesus before the glorious coming of Jesus, they will share in the glory of the coming of the Lord. Again, we remind ourselves, Paul's trying to take away the fear, take away the disappointment in the minds of these Thessalonian Christians because poor Uncle Charlie died just a few days ago. And Charlie loved Jesus, didn't he? Oh, poor Uncle Charlie, he, he waited for Jesus to return and his heart was set on the return of Jesus. And now he died before Jesus returned. And the Thessalonian Christians say, well, poor Uncle Charlie, look, what a disappointment for him. This great event is coming on the horizon. Jesus Christ is coming back and poor Uncle Charlie will have nothing to do with it. Paul says, no, no, no. Uncle Charlie will share in this. He's asleep in the Lord. God will raise him up and he will participate in this great event of the return of Jesus Christ just as much as those people who are alive and remain on the earth will participate in it. The, the, the living will have no advantage over the dead when it comes to this resurrection at the glorious return of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something, though. Did you see what Paul said there in verse 15? He said that we who are alive, that means that Paul himself shared in this expectancy. Let's not hide it. Let's not hold back from this one moment. Paul expected that Jesus Christ would return in his lifetime. Now, for, for many people, they would be shocked that I would say such a thing. They, they think I'm sort of giving away a point to the uh, opponents of Christianity, as if they would say, well, then I guess Paul was a false prophet, wasn't he? He expected that Jesus would return in his lifetime. And look, Jesus didn't return in his lifetime. Paul must have been wrong. No, no, a thousand times no. Because if you study what the Bible says about the return of Jesus Christ and the expectancy that each believer is supposed to have at the return of Jesus Christ, you find out that God wants every generation of Christians to believe that Jesus Christ is coming in their generation. And I believe, I'll sort of go out on a limb and say this, you, you could just take this as my opinion, I believe that God has given some reason for every generation of Christians to believe that Jesus Christ would return in their generation. Now, I have to say that as I look at our generation and as I look at the standing of the world today, I believe that God has given us even more reasons. I would say multiple reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. But I say that without any hesitation, that God wants us to believe that Jesus Christ will return in our lifetime. This is a blessed purifying hope in the life of believers, and God wants us to believe that way. And so Paul expected that Jesus Christ would return in his lifetime, and that's exactly what Jesus wanted him to expect. Now, how does he describe this return of Jesus? Notice here, verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Okay, let's think of those words carefully now. The Lord himself when Jesus comes back, he will come personally, right? He's not just going to send a representative. I think there's some very high-ranking representatives of Jesus in heaven, right? Wouldn't you say that Michael, the archangel, is a high-ranking representative of Jesus? Or maybe Gabriel? Or, or if somebody wanted to get sort of fancy from church history, they, they could say, well, what about Peter? Or what about Paul himself? Or, or what about Martin Luther? Or what about this person or that person? No, no, no. It's going to be Jesus himself, not even a high-ranking representative. Jesus will come personally, and he will come with a shout. Now, the ancient Greek word that's translated in our Bibles, shout, right there, 
It's the same word that was used for the commands that a ship captain would make to his rowers, right? When when he would tell his rowers, row, 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 you know, on the big ship that they would row, he would shout out the command to them. Or it was the same word used that a a military commander would use in speaking to his shoulders. Let me ask you, what, what, what kind of voice is that? Now, men, we're going into battle, and I think it would be a good idea if you fought very hard. You might want to think of It's not like that at all, is it? There's a certain attitude. There's a shout. There's a command. It shows us this would be a commanding, loud shout that will come from heaven. It has the ring of authority. It has the note of urgency, right? The, 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 the captain of the ship doesn't speak to the men pulling the great oars of the ship, suggesting to them that they oar. That No, you pull those oars. You stroke those paddles. This is what you must do. There's the ring of authority and the note of urgency. And I want you to notice here, apparently, there will be some audible signal that prompts this remarkable event that Paul speaks about. Let me read this to you again in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That's something you hear, right? With the voice of an archangel. A voice is something you hear, correct? With the trumpet of God. That's something you hear as well, right? This return of Jesus Christ, as described in the book of 1 Thessalonians, will be connected with something that people can hear. All three descriptions, shout, voice, and trumpet, refer probably to the same sound. Some people believe that that it's referring to three distinct sounds. First, there will be a shout. Then there will be a voice. Then there will be a trumpet. Uh, Personally, I don't think so. I think it's all describing the same sound. That means that when Jesus Christ comes for his church, both asleep and living on this earth, people will be able to hear it. Have you thought about that? Have you thought that when the rapture of the church comes, and and if you don't understand that term rapture, hold on, I'm going to explain it a little bit later when Paul uses that specific term in just a few verses. But when the rapture of the church comes, you will be able to hear it. It will be signaled by something that you can hear. The rapture of the church will not be silent. It will not be secret. Now, the vast majority of people on this earth may not understand the sound, They may not understand the meaning. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when Paul, or should I say Saul of Tarsus, encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul says, maybe I should keep saying Saul because he was called Saul before his conversion. Saul said that he heard Jesus speaking to him from heaven. Yet, if you compare the biblical text and especially the specific Greek words that are used to describe the events... The Bible tells us that his companions heard something, but they didn't understand what they heard. In other words, to Paul, he heard Jesus Christ speaking to him from heaven. His companions just heard noise. And I have a feeling that when that shout splits through the sky, when that trumpet rings through the heavens, when that voice is heard from on high, Every believer in Jesus Christ is going to know what it is. We're going to know. We're going to look up towards heaven. We're going to know our Lord God is calling us home. And the people on this world, they'll hear something, but they won't know what it is. It's almost as if, and I don't want to sound flippant about it, that God has one of those you know, special whistles that only dogs can hear up in heaven. And it'll be one of those things, except the world will hear it, but they won't understand it. But his own people will hear it, and they will understand. And it will be, as he says here, like a shout, like a voice of an archangel. And then as a trumpet. Now, please, don't think that it means here that the Lord himself is an archangel. There's only one person described in the Bible as an archangel. Do you remember who that is? Michael is described as an archangel. Now, there may be more archangels. We can't say. But there's only one individual in the Bible described as an archangel, and that's Michael in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. What what Paul's saying here is that when Jesus comes, he will come in the company of prominent angels. 
He himself will come, but he won't come alone. He's going to come with the company of prominent angels. And he just says not necessarily a specific archangel, but with the voice of an archangel. And then he goes on with the trumpet of God, as it says there in verse 16. Believers are gathered with the trumpet of God. Now, in the Old Testament, trumpets were used to sound the alarm for war and to throw the enemy into panic. In the sense of the seven trumpets that are described, for example, in Numbers chapter 10 and the trumpets that are used in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. So this was one common use of trumpets in the Old Testament. They would call together the armies of God and it would throw the enemies of God into a panic. In other words, it was used as a military thing, but that wasn't the only use of a trumpet in the Old Testament. Trumpets were also used to sound an assembly of God's people apart from a military meaning, right? Just a trumpet sound that would mean come together, everybody. And then, of course, sometimes they were used in a musical sense for worship. But, but I believe here... It's the trumpet of God gathering together God's people. If you wanted to turn to and make a notation in your Bible, you could turn to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24, or Numbers chapter 10, verse 2, which speak of trumpets being used to call an assembly of God's people, and this will be the greatest assembly calling together of God's people ever seen in the universe. Now, There are three other associations of trumpets and end times events used in the New Testament. One of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, where Paul is speaking about the trumpet relevant to the resurrection, and he describes it as the last trump. Now, I would say that the trumpet described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, is the same trumpet that Paul is speaking about here in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There are two other references, though, that I think are different. The other two references are the seven trumpets which culminate at Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. If you know something about the book of Revelation, you know that God's judgment upon the earth comes described in groups of seven. There are seven seals that are unsealed. There are seven trumpets that are blown. And there are seven bowls that are poured out upon the earth. And each one of these describes judgments of God coming upon the earth. Well, well, people notice that in the book of Revelation, there's describing seven trumpets. So maybe the trumpets described in Revelation are this connected with the trumpet here described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to know that I don't think so. And the other trumpet that's mentioned in the scriptures is in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, where there's a trumpet that gathers the elect of Israel at the end of the age. Now, I believe that the Matthew chapter 24 trumpet and the Revelation chapter 11 trumpet are different from this trumpet described here in 1 Thessalonians. You see, if you want to compare the trumpet of Revelation chapter 4, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, with the trumpet of Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, you would have to say that, first of all, the subjects are different. Here in 1 Thessalonians, God is blowing his trumpet for the sake of the church. In Revelation chapter 11, he's blowing it for the sake or against a wicked world. The results are different. Here, when God blows his trumpet, the elect Of the earth, his people are gathered to him. In Revelation chapter 11, when God blows his trumpet, there's a further judgment upon a godless world. Here, in in chapter, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this closes the life of the church on earth, but the seventh trumpet being blown in Revelation chapter 11 marks a climax in God's judgment upon the earth. And so I believe it's different from the Revelation chapter 11 trumpet. I also believe that this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 trumpet is different than the one mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. You see, again, because the subjects are different. Matthew's trumpet refers to Jewish believers during the Great Tribulation. Thessalonians refers to the church. And the circumstances are different. Matthew refers to a gathering of the elect scattered over all the earth. 
with no mention of the resurrection. Thessalonians here refers to a raising of dead believers. And then thirdly, I would say that the results are different. Matthew refers to living believers being gathered from all over the earth at the command of their Lord, who is returned in open glory. But Thessalonians return refers to the uniting of raised um, of the raised dead with living believers to meet the Lord in the air. So what I'm just trying to establish here for you, and I hope I haven't gone into too much depth about it. But you can't say every time a trumpet is used in a prophetic sense in the New Testament that it's referring to the same trumpet. No, no, not at all. There is the trumpet gathering together the people of God in resurrection. That's in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. There is the trumpet gathering the elect of Israel at the end of the Great Tribulation. That's in Matthew chapter 24. And then there is this trumpet of judgment culminating in the seventh trumpet of Revelation chapter 11. Well, listen, enough about the different trumpets. What happens with this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 trumpet? It tells you very plainly there in verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, Paul's point to the Thessalonians is clear. The prior dead in Jesus will not be left out of either the resurrection or the return of Jesus. In fact, they will experience it first. Before believers on the earth. So you see, now the Thessalonians have this cleared up in their mind about Uncle Charlie. They're they're not worried about him anymore. Oh, praise the Lord. When Jesus comes back, we're going to share in it, and so will Uncle Charlie. Now, notice here that he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, many people wonder about this, and rightfully so. How are the dead in Christ raised first? Now, some people believe that the dead in Christ now have temporary bodies in heaven and they await the resurrection. Others believe that in heaven now they are disembodied spirits. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean spirits without a body who are waiting for a resurrection body. Uh, Still others conjecture that the dead in Christ experience their resurrection immediately. It's a little hard to say exactly what the answer is. Now, we know that there will come a day when, in God's eternal plan, the dead in Christ will receive their resurrection bodies. Yet, until that day, we are absolutely confident that the dead in Christ are not in some kind of soul sleep. They're not in some kind of suspended animation. Paul made it clear, this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He didn't say to be absent from the body is to be buried in a hole in the ground waiting for Jesus to one day raise you from the dead. No, Paul made it very clear that when the believer dies, at the very least, their spirit goes to be with God immediately, as in is in paradise. So we must say, that either the present dead in Christ are with the Lord in a spiritual body, awaiting their final resurrection body, or perhaps, and I would say if there's any interpretation I lean towards, this is the one I lean towards, that because of the nature of timeless eternity, they have received their resurrection bodies already because they live in the eternal now. You see, you and I live on this earth with seasons and the sun and the moon and the years go by and the months and all the rest, right? We measure time in the temporal way that we can do it. But when a soul passes from time to eternity, how do we not know that for them it isn't the rapture right then, right? The first day they enter, well, it's the day of the rapture. For us, it's some time off. Maybe it's off later on tonight. Maybe it's off later on next week. Maybe it's next year. We don't know when, do we? But perhaps when a person dies, they are immediately, because of this transition from time to eternity, maybe it is the day of the rapture for them immediately. However God will do it, we are confident that his promise is true. And when we think about it, it's amazing, isn't it? Think of that person buried in the ground. Do you like walking through old graveyards? I like it. 
I like walking and seeing the old tombstones and seeing sometimes the inscriptions on them and the dates. And sometimes it's very touching, isn't it? Haven't you been touched when you look at a graveyard and you see a family of believers and then you see a little headstone, don't you? And you see that little child that died in infancy. And you look at the date and you notice with great tragedy that the year of their birth was the same year as their death. And it pulls at your heart, doesn't it? And you think of all those people buried in all those cemeteries all over the earth. And sometimes it's overwhelming. You think, listen, this is not the land of the living. It's the land of the dead and dying. And we think about all those faithful believers who have gone before us. And we think, well, what about, what about Uncle Charlie in the Thessalonian church? Where are his bones? And you think his bones have long, long since turned into dust. And you know what God says? God says, I will take that dust. I will take his molecules. You say, well, God, how are you going to find his molecules? His molecules have been absorbed into the dirt. And then they were absorbed up into the roots of a radish. And then a cow ate the radish. And then, you know, somebody made milk from the radish and the cow. And then somebody else drank the milk. And he started, listen, I don't know how, but God can keep track of every molecule. And on that day of resurrection, God will call together every molecule of Uncle Charlie and every other believer who has ever lived and bring them together in a glorious resurrection. Now, again, we speak of it as being in the future tense, right? But it may, may very well be that for Uncle Charlie, it's already happened because it's already been the rapture for him as he passed from time into eternity. Well, if this is what's going to happen with the resurrection, if it's any poss- if it's possible at all, verse 17 gets even better. Look at it there. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, those who are alive and remaining until this coming of Jesus are caught up to meet Jesus in the air together with the dead in Jesus who have already risen. Isn't that a glorious thought? You see, Paul isn't just painting this glorious picture of resurrection for those who die in Christ. He says, for some people, those who are on the earth, when Jesus Christ ushers in this great event, they don't have to die. They will immediately be transformed. They will be caught up together with them, with the dead in Christ, in the air, and they will meet the Lord in the air, and they will be transformed. I want you to notice something about verse 17. It uses this phrase, caught up. The verb translated, caught up here, means, in the ancient Greek language, it means to seize, to swoop, or to carry off by force. It means to reach down and grab something and pull it back out. You know, think of a a bag full of kittens in it, right? And they're all squirming around and everything, and you, well, you got to get a kitten out. So what do you do? You put your hand in the bag, you grab one, and you pull it out. Oh, there's a kitten. Well, you just caught up that kitten, right? You just grabbed it, and you brought it up out of the sack. The idea there is of a sudden swoop. Usually... According to Leon Morris, the great commentator, he says, usually that of a force which cannot be resisted. And then he says, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, as it says there in verse 17. To meet the Lord in the air. Now that phrase, to meet, was used as a technical term to describe the official welcoming of honored guests. In other words, it's not just meeting, hi, how are you? No, we're going to be met in a grand reception. We're going to be met as if we are the honored guests coming into heaven. And this passage right here, look at verse 17 carefully, underline it, circle it, whatever you want to do. This passage is the basis for the New Testament doctrine of the rapture. This idea of the catching away of believers to be with Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. The word rapture is not in the English Bible. Nor is the word rapture in the ancient Greek text, but it comes from the Latin Vulgate, which was a very popular translation. It was the dominant translation in the world, oh, for about a thousand years. And that's why the word comes into our language. You see, in the Latin Vulgate, the word caught up here is translated rapturus. And from that, we get our English word rapture. So some people criticize, well, the word rapture isn't even... The, well, it just is translating the idea of caught up. It just sounds better to say the rapture than the caught upness. 
I mean, so we're just, don't get too technical on that. But listen to this. Paul's statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is both dramatic and fantastic. He speaks of Christians flying upward into the air, being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Would you think about that just for a moment? Paul speaks of Christians being caught up, pulled by an invisible hand up into the heavens and meeting the Lord Jesus in the clouds and then going off to being in heaven. Does there any doubt that that's what he's saying there? It's very clear. But look, let's admit it. We would not believe this unless the Bible told us this, right? Can we just step back from this for a moment, take sort of our religious glasses off and say, this is a strange teaching. This is the kind of thing that we would never believe unless the Bible told it to us. It sounds fantastic, but I don't think it's any more fantastic than believing in a God who became a baby, who did miracles, and who died on a cross, and who lives in us. But this is amazing. That God says that there will come a day when he will come and catch away believers by his invisible hand. They will fly up into the heavens and meet the Lord Jesus in the clouds and being taken away into heaven. And and might I say here that Paul's language here is so straightforward and free from figurative speech that there's no missing his intent. Listen, let's be honest. Sometimes the Apostle Paul speaks in word pictures, doesn't he? Sometimes he uses metaphors and similes and different constructions of the language to sort of paint a picture. There is no use of figurative language here. He's telling us exactly what he means. That we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now Paul's plain language leaves no doubt regarding the certainty of the event. It will happen. Yet... The matter of timing this event in the chronology of God's prophetic plan. This is a matter of significant debate among Christians. Many, though may I say certainly not all Christians, many Christians believe that the Bible teaches that there will be an important seven-year period of history before the battle of Armageddon and the triumphal return of Jesus. And this debate about This catching away centers on where it fits in with this final seven-year period. It's popularly known as the Great Tribulation with a reference to Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Now listen, I know very well that that some people will say, no, you can only call the last half of the seven-year period the Great Tribulation. Listen, in a popular context, people like to refer to the entire seven-year period as the Great Tribulation, and that's how I'm going to refer to it. I know that you can take technical exception with it, but in the popular mindset, this seven-year period is known as the Great Tribulation. And there are different approaches that people have about the timing of this catching away with this seven-year period. The pre-tribulation rapture position believes that believers are caught up before the final seven-year period begins. The mid-tribulation rapture position believes that believers are caught up in the midst or right in the middle of this final seven-year period. The pre-wrath rapture position believes that believers are caught up at some time in the second half of this final seven-year period. And the post-tribulation rapture position believes that believers are caught up at the end of this final seven-year period. Now, The believers in these different positions each understand their own position to be biblical. And these differences of understanding should not be dividing lines of Christian fellowship. If you disagree with my understanding on this, you're still my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Now, if you disagree with my understanding of it, I believe you're wrong. I'd like to persuade you to what I believe is the truth, but I don't believe you're Satan. I don't believe you're incorrect. I don't believe you're stupid. I just think you're looking at the scriptures in a different way, and what I would say is a wrong way. My opinion is very confirmed that the pre-tribulation rapture position is biblically correct, that Jesus Christ will have this great catching away of his people before this final seven-year period, popularly known as the Great Tribulation, will begin. And I think that even other references to the return of Jesus within First and Second Thessalonians support this understanding. 
For example, if you turn back just a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, look at that verse. It says there, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, that verse right there, it shows believer, believers waiting for the return of Jesus. And the clear implication is that they have the hope of his imminent return. Did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, and to wait for the great tribulation that's going to come upon the earth? No. He said, wait for the return of Jesus Christ, and that you would be delivered from the wrath to come. Next, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, again, this passage we're studying right now, it assures us that those believers who died would share equally with the living in the events of the rapture and the resurrection, answering their fear that if somehow that the dead in Christ were at a disadvantage. Now, I want you to notice this. If Paul believed that Christians would go through the great tribulation, he would count the dead in Christ as more fortunate than those living Christians who might very well have to endure the great tribulation. Remember Uncle Charlie? Now, let's say that Paul honestly believed that those Christians who remained on the earth until the coming of Jesus Christ would have to live through this horrific seven-year period of the Great Tribulation, and then they would meet Jesus in the air. Then they would be caught up. Now, if that's what Paul believed, wouldn't you say, listen, Thessalonian Christians, Uncle Charlie's doggone lucky because he got to go to Jesus without ever having to go through the Great Tribulation. But Paul never says that, does he? It would have been logical for Paul to comfort the Thessalonians with the idea that the dead in Jesus are better off because they won't have to experience the great tribulation like you poor Christians who are on the earth will have to experience. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, it comforts Christians enduring hardship, promising them a coming rest while their persecutors are going to face a certain judgment. But if Paul knew that the church was destined to pass through the Great Tribulation, it would have been more appropriate for him to warn these Christians about worse trials to come and worse suffering ahead, rather than to hold on to a promise of a coming rest. You see what I'm saying? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, Oh, you Thessalonian Christians, you're being persecuted. Hey, it's okay, there's a rest coming for you. Now, if he knew that the Great Tribulation was coming for those Christians, then Paul should have said, listen, you Thessalonian Christians, I'm sorry you're being persecuted, but you better know the worst is yet to come. You think it's bad now? Wait until the Antichrist rises up in power and persecutes all Christians in a horrible way. But wait until you have to live with the pressure of taking the mark of the beast. Paul never says that. No, instead, he confidently promised the Thessalonian believers there is a coming rest. So what I want you to see is even just within the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul's whole mentality, Paul's whole framework is of a pre-tribulation rapture. And that's why he can say with great confidence in verse 17, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, the manner in which we will go to the Lord is impressive, right? This flying through the sky business, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? But listen, that's not the best part. The main point is that whatever the state of the Christian, whether they're dead or alive at the Lord's coming, they will always be with the Lord. And that is the great reward of heaven to be with Jesus. Here's the message. Death cannot break our unity with Jesus or with other Christians. Isn't that beautiful? You have a unity with Jesus that cannot be broken by death. And might I say, if you are my brother or my sister in Jesus Christ, I have a unity with you that cannot be broken by death. We will all be together forever. We shall always be with the Lord. I love that phrase. We shall always be with the Lord. That implies continuation because it assumes right now that you're already with the Lord, right? So you're with them now, and you're going to continue to be with them. It also implies hope for the dying, because in death, you are still going to be with the Lord. It implies a future confidence, because after death, we're with the Lord. And it also implies advancement, because we will one day always be with the Lord. Now, you might say today you're with the Lord, but you know how it is. If your life is like mine, someday you're more with the Lord than other days, right? 
But there will come a day when we will always be with the Lord. It's as if Spurgeon said, or as Spurgeon said it here on a great quote on this verse. He said, we shall be so with him as to have no sin to becloud our view of him. The understanding will be delivered from all the injury uh, of which sin has brought in it. And we shall know him even as we are known. That is the glory of heaven. Therefore, look at verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I want you to notice this. Paul did not tell them to take comfort, but to give comfort. That's the way God works. In God's economy, we always receive comfort as we give it. Listen, if you want to be comforted, go find a person to comfort, and God will minister to you comfort as you comfort somebody else. Comfort one another with These words, what words? The words about our glorious destiny with Jesus Christ, the truth of the return of Jesus for his people and the eternal union of Jesus and his people. It's to be a source of comfort for Christians. And might I say again that this concluding statement of Paul in chapter four, it only makes sense if the catching away of the previous verses actually delivers Christians from an impending danger. If the catching away only brings humanity to God for judgment, there's little comfort in these words. No, no, no. But there's comfort in them because we know that we will be caught up before this great time of tribulation comes upon the earth. Well, in the time we have remaining, why don't we poke into chapter 5 here, at least for a few verses, where he continues talking on the same theme of Jesus' coming here. Verse 1, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. I'm so astounded by Paul's words just in verse 1 there where it says, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You see, the Thessalonians were well taught about the return of Jesus and other prophetic matters. Paul taught them about the times and the seasons regarding the return of Jesus. They had an idea of the prophetic times that they lived in, and they could discern the seasons of their present culture. We're so impressed with this that Paul was only with the Thessalonians for a matter of weeks, and yet he taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. And so he said, you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes. Now, maybe we should stop right there. Do you understand what he means by the day of the Lord? You see, with that phrase, the day of the Lord, Paul is quoting a familiar Old Testament idea. The idea behind the phrase, the day of the Lord, is that this is God's time. It's as if man has his day and the Lord has his day. In an ultimate sense, the day of the Lord is fulfilled when Jesus judges the earth and returns in glory. That's God's day, the day of the Lord. And so it's important to understand, the day of the Lord does not refer to a single day. It refers to a season when God rapidly advances his agenda to the end of the age. It's a day, if I could use a very old and sort of stupid phrase, it's a day when God is large and in charge, right? He says, I'm dominating. This is no more am I just going to even appear to let events careem off in a way so that anybody thinks that the world is ruled by fate or Satan or the world. No, this is my time. I'm going to exercise my prerogative now and everybody will see it. It's a familiar Old Testament expression. It communicates us the time when God intervenes in history in a very apparent way. And so he says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Did you understand what this means? It means that the Thessalonians had been taught by the Apostle Paul that they could not know when Jesus was going to return. That day was going to be, that day was going to remain unknown. And it would be unknown as the arrival of a thief to your house is unknown. And Jesus is speaking in very plain, excuse me, Paul is speaking in very plain language here, right? You don't know when the thief is going to come to your house. If you did know, you'd be ready for him. 
And so the day of Jesus' return is unknown. It's going to come as a surprise, as a thief in the night. Now, some take the idea where it says here, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night to mean that nothing can or should be known about God's prophetic plan for the future. Yet, Paul indicated that they definitely knew that the time could not be definitely known. In other words, Paul didn't set specific dates, but he wanted us to be ready for the unexpected. God wants his people to be ready for the unexpected hour of his return. And when will it come? As he says here, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. The unexpected nature of that day will be a tragedy for the unbeliever. They're going to be lulled to sleep by the political and economic conditions, but they're going to be rudely awakened. They're going to hear this frightening verdict as it is related there in verse uh, 3. Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them and it says they will not escape. You see this sudden coming in a time when many say peace and safety. This has to be distinct from the coming of Jesus described in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 35. The the, the coming of Jesus described in that passage happens at a time of great global catastrophe when nobody could say peace and safety. When there's such calamity on this earth that people won't be walking around saying, hey, peace and safety. No, this refers to the coming of Jesus at an unexpected time. And this tells us, this among many passages tells us, that there must be Two separate aspects of the coming of Jesus, both of which are separated by some appreciable time. You see, because one aspect of his coming is at an unexpected hour. That's what we're reading about right here, right? An other aspect of his coming is positively predicted. One aspect of his coming is to a business-as-usual world, right? Peace and safety, marrying and giving in marriage. But another aspect of his coming is to a world in cataclysm. One aspect of his coming is where his saints meet him in the air. The other aspect of his coming is when the saints come with him from the air. But to show you how unexpectedly this will all come, Paul uses this word picture here in verse 3 where he says, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, woman and they shall not escape. You see, that phrase labor pains, it suggests two things to us. First, in, oh boy, how can I put this out? I, I can't picture this word in my mind here. Inevitability. That it is. The word inevitability. In other words, when it comes, it will be inevitable, right? You can't stop it. That's the whole idea. A, a woman starts her, her labor pains, you can't stop it. Now look, don't, don't tell me yes. Well, no, you can apply this drug or that drug or this. Listen, you know how it mostly goes when women give birth, right? Labor begins and it doesn't end until that baby's born. So when he's using the picture of labor pains, he's saying it is inevitable. Hallelujah, I said the word. Next, it will be unexpected. Because a woman has a general idea when the labor pains come, right? But how often is it a surprise? Whoa! There, whoa! It's got, what's that? No, of course, what, what? Didn't you know you're going to have a baby? Look at you. Your, your stomach's bigger than a bowling ball. You know, of course you did. What, but yeah, but now, you know, it's unexpected. Even though it's expected, it's still unexpected. So it's inevitable and it's unexpected. And Jesus used the same idea in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, when he spoke of the calamities preceding the end of the times as the beginning of sorrows, which is literally the beginning of labor pains. The idea is giving birth to a new age and implying the increase in the intensity and the frequencies of these calamities. And so Paul gives a basis For these exhortations here, verses 4 and 5, he says, But you, brethren, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. You see, listen, this is all going to catch the world by surprise. Oh, but it should not catch you by surprise, brothers. No, not you, because you're not in the darkness. 
You see, in addressing the, the, their behavior, Paul simply told the Thessalonian Christians that they should be who they are. You're not in the darkness, so don't live as if you're in the darkness. You're sons of the light. There is no reason why this day should overtake you as a thief. It should not happen to the believer. We should live with that constant expectancy, that constant readiness for the return of Jesus Christ. And so what exhortation does he offer in light of this? Look at verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But those of us who are of the day, we're sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, listen, we don't belong to the night. We're not sons of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep Our spiritual condition should never be able to be described as sleep. You you see, spiritually speaking, we need to be active and aware to watch and be sober. I want you to notice something here. Paul says, let us not sleep. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, remember when I was reading those verses at the very beginning, verse 13? He spoke about, in verse 13, those who have fallen asleep, in verse 13, and now, in, where is it, verse 5, he mentions, or verse 6, actually, uh, therefore let us not sleep, as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Two different words for sleep. One speaks of the restful sleep of believers. Here, a different word for sleep is used, and it covers all sorts of moral and spiritual laxity or insensibility. You see, sleep speaks of so much that belongs to the world, but should not belong to Christians. Sleep speaks of ignorance, right? You're not getting smarter when you sleep, are you? The world can be asleep, Christians should not. Sleep speaks of insensibility. In other words, you're not aware of what's going on around you. Listen, that may be fine for the world, it's not fine for believers. Sleep, Sleep speaks of no defense. Can you defend yourself when you're sleeping? No, now listen, it may be fine for the world to live with no defense, but not believers. And of course, sleep speaks of inactivity. You can't do anything, right? You're not doing anything. Look, you're just laying there. What are you doing when you're asleep? In a sermon on this text by Charles Spurgeon titled, Awake, Awake, Spurgeon showed the folly and the tragedy of the sleeping Christians with three very powerful images. First, he he painted the image of a city suffering under the plague and an official walking the streets of the city, crying out, bring out the dead, bring out the dead. But you know what? There's a doctor in the city and he has the cure to the disease in his pocket, but he's asleep. That's a tragedy, isn't it? And then he painted another picture. He painted a picture of a passenger ship that's reeling under a storm and it's about to crash on the rocks. It's going to bring near certain death to the hundreds of passengers. And where's the captain? He's asleep. And then a third picture. There's a prisoner in his cell about ready to be led to execution. His heart is terrified at the idea of hanging from the hangman's noose and the the death that awaits him. And then what's worse, the hell that will await him after his death. All the while, there's a man with a letter of pardon from the governor in his pocket and he's sitting in another room asleep. The sleep of any one of those three men, the doctor with the cure, the ship captain with the directions of the ship, the, 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 the man with the pardon for the convicted criminal. You would say, it's a crime for you to sleep. How much more? How much more? Is it a tragedy for Christians to be asleep in this world? We, we have the words of life for people. And so he says, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober He goes on there, verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. You see, that's the opposite of spiritual watchfulness. It's spiritual sleep. The opposite of spiritual sobriety is to be spiritually drunk. And Christians are of the day, so we must watch and be sober. And then he says there in verse 8, Putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet for the hope of salvation. And Paul uses here the the images of a soldier's armor to illustrate the idea of watchfulness. A a soldier is a good example of somebody who must watch and be sober. And he's equipped to watch and be sober with the armor that he has on. 
Now, I've got to say, this is very interesting to me. You, you saw this description of spiritual armor right here, right? D- did you know that there's a description of spiritual armor in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? And I want you to think about this for a moment. It's not exactly the same description of spiritual armor that you find in Ephesians chapter 6, right? Here he says, the breastplate of faith and love. Well, what is it in Ephesians 6? Isn't it the breastplate of righteousness? And then the helmet of the hope of salvation. Where he's The helmet of salvation. More, what I want you to see by this is that this indicates that Paul saw the idea of spiritual armor as a helpful picture. It's not something to be over-rigid about in the details. You know, it's not like the Christian carries two breastplates with him, right? Well, this is my breastplate of salvation, and here's the breastplate of faith and love, and you got to switch between the two. No, that's not, that's taking the picture too far, right? You just need to understand, Paul used these things as illustrations. It's not some spiritual law, it's an illustration. But faith and love are represented by the breastplate because the breastplate covers the vital organs. No soldier would ever go into battle without his breastplate, and no Christian is equipped to live the Christian life without faith and love. And the hope of salvation is represented as a helmet, because the helmet protects the head, which is just as essential as the breastplate. By the way, when it says hope there, the idea isn't wishful thinking, but it's a confident expectation of God's hand in the future. Now let's conclude with verses 9 and 10. Because here, Paul's going to sort of wrap up this idea of the return of Jesus Christ. He says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Do you see him sort of drawing this to a full circle? We live together with him, right? Us together with the Lord, together with other believers. God did not appoint us to wrath. You see, now we have this hope of salvation. Before, we had an appointment to wrath, but we no longer have an appointment to wrath, but now we have an appointment to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about it here. In verse 9, it says, God did not appoint us to wrath. Think about an appointment to wrath, right? You might have an appointment to the dentist, right? Or you might have an appointment to the doctor. What, did you know that before you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you had an appointment to wrath? You say, well, how did I have an appointment to wrath? Well, I'll tell you how. First, Adam made an appointment to wrath for you. You know, it's very possible for somebody to make an appointment on your behalf, right? They, they call up the doctor and they say, well, so-and-so would like to see you uh, next Thursday at this and this time. And they make an appointment on your behalf. Your spiritual father, Adam, made an appointment to wrath for you. Secondly, you made your own appointment to wrath, didn't you? Every act of sin, every act of rebellion, it confirmed the appointment to wrath. You see, now you say, well, listen, I don't want to show up for that appointment to wrath. I don't want to go. Well, you don't have to. Instead, come to Jesus Christ, as it says right there in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. As he will always be with him forever. Therefore, in verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. You see again. Paul again tells us not to take comfort, but to give comfort. If every Christian had a heart to comfort another Christian, then all Christians would be comforted. But not just comfort, but edify. That means to build up. Again, when we have an interest to build up somebody else's Christian life, God will build us up. The idea here is beautiful. The idea here is a church of active participants, not of passive spectators. How many people come to church on a Sunday and really come with the idea of, I want to build somebody up? You know, if you come with that mentality, it'll change the way you do church. Absolutely. Instead, most people come to church saying, well, I want to be built up. Well, praise the Lord, and I trust you will be built up as you come to church. But what a change in your mentality to come and say, I want to build somebody up. Lord, today, when I come to church, will you show me who I can pray with? Will you show me who I can encourage? Will you show me who I can share a passage of Scripture with? Will you show me who I can build up? Because as it says right here in verse 11, right? Therefore, let the pastors comfort you and edify you and never one to another. No, it's not what it says, right? 
this work of comforting and edifying one another, it's to be done communally among believers. And you got to love how Paul says it at the end of verse 11, just as you also are doing it. You see, it's not that the Thessalonians weren't doing this. They were comforting one another. They were edifying one another. But Paul says, you just keep doing it more and more. And isn't that the best situation? It's great to speak to a bunch of Christians who are comforting one another, who are edifying one another, and say, you just keep doing it. Keep doing it more and more, so much as you see the day approaching. Well, we've been a long way here since verse 14, where we started out this evening. But I want you to see this glorious hope that God gives us. I admit it seems fantastic to think about it, that God will catch away his people to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, but we have to admit Paul shares the truth with us so specifically and so beautifully that we take comfort in it. But shouldn't we not only take comfort in it, but give comfort with it? Surely God will bring you to a believer who needs to be comforted or edified. What? Take it. Take what he's given you and give it to somebody else. God blesses you so that you can be a blessing to other people. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer together here tonight. We thank you, Lord. We can't look over these passages that speak of our glorious destiny together as believers in Jesus Christ, how you have this heavenly security, this heavenly hope for us, Lord. We can't read passages like this about how we're not appointed to wrath without being so encouraged and so blessed ourselves. But Lord, just remind us that we're not here gathered together tonight just as sort of bless me club where we sit around and want you to bless us. But rather, Lord, we are blessed by you so that we can be a blessing to other people. Oh, you have given us comfort this evening, Lord. Help us to comfort and to edify others and to do it for the sake of Jesus who has given so much to us. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing that wrath, that appointment to wrath that we deserve, Lord, because when we had that appointment to wrath, you showed up in our place at the cross and took what we deserved. Thank you for that great love, Jesus, and all of your goodness towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.